Hello and welcome to our Wednesday night Bible study here at Celebration Church. Glad that you have joined with us. We are in the Old Testament, the book of Kings, 1st Kings to be precise. There's 1st Kings and then 2nd Kings uh, in the Old Testament. And uh, as is our tradition, if you're new to this, as we take a uh, book of the Bible and we go through it one verse at a time uh, to just keep it all in context and really expound on exactly what the Bible is teaching here. Now, in in Kings, the beginning of Kings, we're basically finding out about the life of, uh, you know, David's life comes to an end and Solomon comes along and, and uh, all the great things that Solomon did. But then it starts going through and just keeps a record of who was king of Israel, who was king of Judah. Israel had basically split at this point right after Solomon's death. You had the north and the south kind of like you had during the Civil War in the United States. The north in Israel had uh, 10 tribes. There's 12 tribes in Israel. The south was the tribe of Judah and the little itty-bitty tribe of Benjamin. Oftentimes, Benjamin isn't even mentioned, but those are the other two tribes. Uh, so you had the north and the south. The south tribes, the southern tribes, Judah, were the ones that followed the, the Davidic covenant following King, King David, and there was a special blessing on them because of God's promise to David. Uh, God was still willing to bless Israel as well if they would do the right thing. The truth of the matter is, they were both doing bad things. And uh, we get the record in 1 Kings. Uh, there's kind of a corresponding record in uh, Chronicles, First uh, and 2 Chronicles, kind of like you have different Gospels with the same kind of story. You kind of get that, except that in Chronicles, they pretty much just focus on Judah, uh, the tribe of David, uh, or the, 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 the Davidic covenant, and following with uh, uh, just Judah's trial, whereas... Um, uh, experience, whereas in First Kings, we see both Israel and Judah, Israel and Judah. Now, we got past Solomon, and then we started hearing about this king and that king, and this king. there's a few just chapters, a couple of paragraphs on each one of these kings. Most of them were complete losers. Uh, they weren't doing what God wanted them to do, except for one guy who was a great guy. He did do what God wanted him to do, but just kind of back and forth, and just a couple of paragraphs on each guy, this king, that king, this king, and then all of a sudden, it comes to King Ahab, and it's like, ah! And the thing slows down dramatically. In fact, um, it comes to a screeching halt now because of the uh, uh, introduction of two prophets that are two of like the major prophets of the Old Testament. Elijah and the guy who follows him, his successor, Elisha. And the Bible slows down dramatically here to show us the details around these two prophets. Okay, so we've got Elijah and Elisha and it starts with King Ahab and really for the rest of the... Uh, Kings, first Kings, and then picking up into second Kings is all based around uh, uh, these two incredible prophets. Now, while well, we start in chapter 17 of first Kings, Elijah, Elijah the Tishbite, this prophet comes along, a prophet, by the way, who never wrote anything down, whereas we've got some prophets in the Old Testament, Jeremiah, Isaiah, you know, Amos, Joel, Hosea, a lot of these minor prophets and major prophets. Uh, we've got their recordings and stuff, but these two major Yo Mama prophets, as far as we know, didn't write down anything. There's no record of them. Uh, what made them so incredible is the miracles that these guys performed, very much uh, in the light of what Jesus would someday do. Of course, Jesus blew away what these guys did, but these are the first guys to come along and do miracles and raising the dead and doing all kinds of amazing stuff. Pretty, pretty impressive guys. So Elijah shows up. The first thing he does, he goes to King Ahab, and he makes his introduction and says, hey, there will be no more rain until I says there's going to be rain, and he leaves. That's it. Well, now there's no rain for like three and a half years in Israel, and it's just complete. You can imagine uh, the devastation. I mean, people around here panic if there's no rain for a couple of months. 
Or you can imagine all year no rain. Can you imagine two years, now three years no rain? Serious drought, serious famine starts coming on the land. It's really the result of, of God's judgment on uh, Israel, uh, in particular, because of their sins against God. Well, so anyway, he shows up, he makes this proclamation, he leaves, uh, and eventually winds up with this widow who he had performed this miracle and said if this widow would honor God first by feeding the prophet first, by giving, then it would be given to her. Who does that sound like? Jesus. Give and it shall be given. So he said, if you will serve me first in this, I promise that your cup of uh, grain or your, your bottle of grain, your bottle of oil will never run out. And it never did. The whole time that they were going until the rain started coming again, every day there was, there was some in it. It was just a miracle, a never-ending miracle. Uh, so that we talked about that last week. Now, we pick it up at chapter 17 of, verse 17 of chapter 17, 17, 17. Now, sometime later, so he's hanging out, staying with this lady and her son, and, you know, he must have a little, you know, I don't know if he has a little apartment to the side or whatever, but he's basically staying there and living off the same miracle food, despite the famine that was going on. Sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill, so her son becomes sick. And he grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. Now take a picture of this. It's bad. He gets sick. What happens? It gets worse. What happens next? It gets worse. What happens next? Now he's dead. I point this out because oftentimes we think that if we're in a place of blessing, if we're in a place walking with God, bad things don't happen to us. Things, negative things don't come our way. That all we are surrounded by is an unending stream of promised blessings and prosperity. And while it is true God wants to bless and prosper you and heal you and, and, and help you succeed, this idea that you will never have times of testing or trial where things go badly is not a biblical concept. Even here, this prophet is there and they're having miracles. And every day, remember, every day there's a miracle. Because every day she opens up, there's more grain, there's more oil to feed them all. Every day the miracles started over again. They were in a constant state of miracles, constant state of God's moving in that house with the great prophet Elijah right there. And in the midst of daily wow miracles and the presence of this incredible prophet, the son gets sick and then he gets worse and then he gets worse and then he dies. Wow. Well, she's pretty upset. You can imagine the boy quits breathing altogether. She looks at Elijah and she says in verse 18, why, why have, what do you have against me, man of God? She says she basically right away blames the prophet. Maybe she had asked the prophet to pray for her. That's an easy assumption. If you have a prophet in your home, and God's doing miracles in your home through this prophet, and your son gets sick and keeps getting worse and worse, do you think you go ask for the prophet to pray? My guess is she probably did. Maybe he did. We don't know. For all we know, he prayed, and he prayed for him, and that would be the logical conclusion. I don't think most people wait till somebody's dead before, oh, gee, I guess we should have prayed. So it's easy to assume that he must have prayed, but nothing happens. The kid quits breathing. She is heartbroken, as you can well imagine. She looks at the prophet and says, what do, you, what do you have against me? Did, did you 
just come here to remind me of my sin and kill my son? Is this, is this just the, the result of my failure in life, of her sins? What sins? I don't know. We don't know anything about the lady. We don't know what her past is. But here she is, and she feels like God has turned against her. Even though she had been seeing miracles every day. Why would she feel this way? You would too. If your child got sick and got worse and worse and then died. So she's heartbroken. You can't hardly blame her. I mean, this is a very, very sad situation. Elijah replies and said, well, give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him to the upper room where he was staying. And he laid the child on the bed. Then he cried out to the Lord, Oh, Lord, my God, have you brought tragedy also upon this widow I am staying with by causing her son to die? Now, it's kind of an interesting thing here because um, oftentimes uh, people, you'll see in the Old Testament that they assumed everything that happened was from God. We oftentimes see that same thinking today in the area of grace that we're living now in the New Testament. That's why people ask, really, if you understand the Bible, dumb questions like, and if you thought these questions, I, I don't mean to insult you, but dumb questions that say, well, why did God let this happen? Why does God allow wars? Why does God allow famines? Well, it's, it's dumb from a biblical sense because once you really understand the Bible, you understand God doesn't do these things. These are things that are oftentimes the result of just natural forces or the re result of Satan. God doesn't run around killing people. God doesn't run around uh, inflaming wars. This is the act of Satan. Interesting that Satan does something and then gets us all to point our fingers at God. You know, can you imagine that? Can you imagine you're doing something at work and everything goes wrong and someone is instigating things and everything falling apart and they say, why did it fall apart? And they point at you and said, it's, it's Bob's fault. But I didn't do anything to it. You know, I mean, this is what Satan does. He creates disasters. He creates uh, heartache and pain and stuff. It's the result of evil in the earth, not the result of God in the earth. The idea of even asking, why does God let these things happen, as, as if God controls everything, is a ludicrous assumption. Certainly in today's age, when we really have an opportunity to know the Bible. But in the Old Testament, they did not understand. Their, their understanding of God was more limited. They didn't have Jesus. They didn't have the Holy Spirit. They didn't have a lot of this revelation. They just assumed everything that happened was God, good or bad. I mean, it was just, you know, that's the way it was. So he cries out, God, why have you brought tragedy upon this widow by causing her son to die? I highly doubt God calls the boy to die. If you know God, this is the God who loves people. This is the God who in the form of physical man in, in, in the name of Jesus went around and healing the sick and raising the dead and setting people free. Clearly we see what God is like. God is a healer. God is a deliverer. God is a lifter up, not a putting down. God is the one giving grace when there should have been uh, law and, and condemnation applied. We saw the heart of God in Jesus. Highly unlikely God caused the boy to die. That's not very godlike. Unless Sometimes, you know, you'll see, read in the Old Testament that God will uh, put things into mo motion that will bring judgment on people. Yes, that did happen. Uh, but we don't see any, emphasis, or any uh, uh, evidence of that here. All we know is the boy gets sick and he dies. So he, cr he cries out to God. And he stretched himself out on the boy three times. Now this is, you know, pretty strange. 
I mean, what a way to pray for something. The kid's laying on there. So the prophet lays the kid on the bed and then lays on top of the kid and spreads himself on top of the kid. It's a, talk about laying hands on somebody. Man, some dude starts laying on top of you. I was like, oh, dude, get off. Of course, the kid's dead. He's not going to mind. But he's laying all over him, and he's praying to God for a miracle. Pretty wild, huh? So he cries out for the boy three times. He cries out to God, which is interesting. He cries, oh, Lord, my God, let this boy's life return to him. Why did he pray three times before he got the answer? I don't understand these things. A lot of people get... uh, into numerology, you know, the number, you know, sometimes a guy asks for seven times. They walked around the uh, walls of Jericho seven times that one day before it fell down. Something magical in the number seven, something magical in the number three. You know, I don't know. I don't care. I don't get it. You know, uh, I just don't understand it. You want someone to talk to you about numbers and the power of numbers and knock yourself out. I'm just trying to focus on the power of Jesus. I got enough. Focus there without trying to figure out numbers. But three times he cries out. Why didn't God answer the first time? I don't know. Why didn't God answer the second time? I don't know. Why did God answer the third time? Why did he then the third time? I I don't know. But he did. And the boy, uh, let's see, the Lord heard Elijah's cry and the boy's life returned to him. And he lived. And Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room into the house. And he gave him to his mother and said, look, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God. Now? Now you know? Now, now again, you can't slam the poor lady. Her understanding of God is limited. I would think you got a couple of magic jars that never run out of food. I pretty much know you're a man of God. Okay? Uh, But now after raising her son from the dead, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord comes from your mouth is the truth. So, again, it's easy to criticize her, uh, but what I would uh, dare challenge those of us listening to this is you don't need that kind of miracle to know that God is true. It's easy for her now to say, oh, I know you're a man of God now. Sure, after he, she gets what she wants and the guy's raised from the dead. It kind of reminds me of, uh, you know, in the New Testament after Jesus was raised from the dead, uh, all the apostles saw Jesus, except Thomas. Thomas wasn't there. And later they came and said, hey, Thomas, Jesus is raised from the dead. And Thomas says, well, I won't believe that till I see him. And then finally Jesus shows up and says, here, put your hands. Because he said, unless I put my hands in his wounds and my hand into his side, I won't believe. That's what Thomas said. Well, Jesus shows up and says, here I am. Stick your hands in there. Well, right away, he falls down and he worships Jesus and said, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said, well, you believe because you've seen Thomas. That's where you get the phrase doubting Thomas because he doubted it because he didn't see Jesus until he saw him. Then he believed. Jesus, well, you believe, but blessed are those who believe and never see. You are already more blessed than Thomas. You will be more blessed in heaven than Thomas already because you believe in Jesus now and you haven't seen him. Thomas had to see him. You know, let's get to a place of faith uh, and let's be reassured in our faith before we see the end result. In fact, I would argue from a New Testament standpoint that you won't get to these kind of miracles unless you believe ahead of time. You have to believe first. Okay, this lady wasn't full of belief, but yet God did a miracle on her behalf. This is not our standard. But it's interesting to see how this miracle of Elijah came to pass. So now we've got a serious prophet here. You start raising people from the dead, you are now at a different level as a prophet.
So uh, now it says in chapter 18, continuing on, it says, now after a long time in the third year, remember this went on for a good three, three and a half years of this, this uh, uh, drought. After three years now, apparently he stayed there that whole time. The word of the Lord came to Elijah. He said, now go present yourself to Ahab and I will send rain on the land. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. So Elijah takes off and he's going to go see Ahab. Um, by this time, you have to understand, Ahab has been looking for Elijah because he wants to strangle Elijah because he's the guy who got up prophesied, until I say so, you're not going to get rain anymore. And he takes off. Well, at first, he kind of blow the guy off. First month, no rain. Second month, no rain. Six months, no rain. Nine months, no rain. Twelve months, goes on. Hey, where is that prophet? Go find him. But he's hiding out this whole time. God has him hidden with his widow and her son. He can't find him because obviously the guy was true. There's been no rain. He says, it won't rain until I say so again. Well, you're going to find the prophet and make him say so, right? This is what the king is thinking. Now, the famine was severe in Samaria, and Ahab had summoned Obadiah, who was in charge of his palace. So Ahab, this big arrogant king, and his wicked wife, Jezebel, uh, summons Obadiah. Now, it says in parentheses here that Obadiah was a devout believer in the Lord. He was basically undercover. You have to understand that Ahab and Jezebel are extremely wicked, uh, Jezebel is really wicked. This is where you get to this day, if you refer to a woman who's wicked and evil, you call her a Jezebel, okay? That's from this woman. You know, thousands of years later, people still refer to you as, you know, wicked. Man, you're one nasty chick. And that's who this lady was. She uh, hated the things of God. She was going around killing the prophets of God. Um, over, you know, uh, Ahab and this lady, not big God worshipers. They were more into the idols and serving the, the god, the Baal god, B-A-A-L, that was his name, and uh, uh, basically sitting against God. Well, Obadiah is a believer, and he's working for these two wicked people. So he basically keeps it quiet, uh, what he's about, uh, and he's kind of basically undercover in, in, the, in the palace here. So Obadiah was a devout believer in the Lord. Now, while Jezebel was killing off the Lord's prophets, that's what she was doing, she's wicked, Obadiah had taken a hundred prophets and hid them in two caves, 50 in each, and had supplied them with food and water. So here he takes a hundred prophets. Jezebel's going out killing every prophet of God that there is. He takes a uh, hundred of them, splits them up into two caves, takes care of them, feeds them, and he's hiding this the whole time from Jezebel and, uh, and uh, Ahab. So anyway, Ahab calls this guy. And Ahab says to Obadiah, go through the land to all the springs and valleys. Maybe we can find some grass to keep the horses and mules alive so we will not have to kill any of our animals. So they divided the land they were to cover, Ahab going in one direction and Obadiah going in another. Now as Obadiah was walking along, and again, they're just looking for some place to take some animals to find some green grass to eat. It's gotten very bad. Three years, no rain. It's a bad situation. As Obadiah was going along, all of a sudden he meets Elijah. Obadiah recognized him, bowed down to the ground, and said, Is it really you, my lord Elijah? Yes, he replied. And he tells him, Go, tell your master. Who's his master? Ahab. Go tell your master, Elijah is here. Why? Because God had told him to present himself to Ahab. Well, <laughs> right away, Obadiah kind of freaks out. Because um, Elijah is one of these prophets, these powerful prophets that you know, the Spirit of God would just pick him up and zap him in one place or the other. I mean, he didn't know what was going to happen. So as soon as he said, go tell your boss that I'm here, Obadiah says this, what have I done wrong? That you are handing your servant over to Ahab to be put to death. 
I mean, he assumed it was a death sentence right away because he assumed what will happen is I'll go tell Ahab, you're here, you come. He's not going to be here and he's going to kill me. As surely as the Lord your God lives, there is not a nation or kingdom where my master has not sent someone to look for you. He's been looking for you everywhere. Why? Because you said no more rain till I say this rain. He's looking like crazy trying to find him. And he's hiding out with his uh, widow and her son. He says, whenever a nation or kingdom claimed you were not there, he made them swear that they could not find you. But now you tell me to go to my master and say, hey, Elijah's here. I'm the only guy who could find him. After he's done all this and gone through every, everywhere they can possibly imagine, they can't find you. Now, I'm going to say I found you. I don't know where the Spirit of the Lord may carry you when I leave you. If I go and tell Ahab and he doesn't find you, he will kill me. Yet I, your servant, have worshipped the Lord since my youth. Haven't you heard, my Lord, what I did while Jezebel was killing the prophets of the Lord? I hid a hundred of the Lord's prophets in two caves, fifty in each. I supplied them with food and water. And now you tell me to go to my master and say, Elijah's here. He says he will kill me. I mean, this open, I was freaked out. Just from the one request, go tell Ahab I'm here. Well, Elijah says, dude, chill out. As the Lord Almighty lives, whom I serve, I will surely present myself to Ahab alive. Quit freaking out. I'll be here. So Obadiah went and he met Ahab and said, and told him. And Ahab went to meet Elijah. And when he saw Elijah, he said to him, is that you, you troubler of Israel? Why is he a troubler? He said, because you prophesied this and now we don't have any more water. Is that, is that really you? And Elijah says, I have not made trouble for Israel, but you and your father's family have. You've abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. These are all these false prophets. Jezebel loved this false religion, worshiping Baal and the Asherah poles and the whole thing. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Now why would he have such influence over Ahab? Because he basically, at his word, has shut off all the rain. This guy got, has huge power and influence at this point. He's listening to uh, Elijah. He wants Elijah to say there'll be rain again so that they can get back the water. Well, Elijah went before the people. So he basically calls this big gathering together. He's got all these hundreds of prophets of Baal. You know, Ahab's there. All the people of Israel have gathered. They're on Mount Carmel. And there's basically what I call the big showdown here, the big showdown of the OK Corral on top of Mount Carmel. And... Uh, so Elijah went before the people. He said, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. You guys are kind of in and out. You know, I, yeah, I kind of want to serve God, but this, this, this prophet stuff's kind of cool. But I, I know I should do the right thing. But, you know, I really like, you know, this Baal thing's kind of hip and cool. And we, we get to do these sexual things. That's kind of, but no, I should do, they're just wavering all over the place. And he says, when are you going to quit dancing between the two? And the next words say, but the people said nothing. They're a bunch of wieners, these guys. They wouldn't stand for anything. And he just sat there looking at the prophets of Baal and the one prophet of the Lord in Elijah. Then Elijah said to them, if I am the, he said, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, which is, by the way, not true. We'll see about this later. Remember, we already know Obadiah had hid 100 prophets. But by this time, Elijah very much has a sense that he's the only guy left. 
In fact, it becomes a, a, a point of depression for him later. He act, this guy, this powerful prophet actually gets depressed. You think you've got some emotional issues? You're not the only one. See, that's what I love about this prophet is this guy, you know, he was extremely human and he had his issues. And even though God used him mightily, he had his bad days. And we're going to see this coming up as we get into this. He says, I'm the only one left, but Baal has 450 prophets. So get two bulls from us for, for us and let them choose one for themselves and cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but don't set fire to it. And I'll prepare the other bull and put the wood on it, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God and I'll call on the name of the Lord and the God who answers by fire. He's God. So he's got a, like a major uh, showdown here. Two altars. You get it ready. I got mine ready. You pray to your God. I'll pray to mine. The one who answers by fire sends fire from heaven. This is God. Now, then what's interesting is the people all said, yeah, good idea. What you say is good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, sounds fine. Now, Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it, since there are so many of you, and call on the name of your God, but don't light a fire. So they took the bull and prepared, the bull given to them and prepared it. Then they all called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Oh, Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. Now, keep this in mind. These guys didn't. They, he, he called for this showdown. Who's going to bring down fire? Those guys didn't go, oh, no, no, that's not fair. We don't want to do that. They basically said, sure. Why? These guys were serious Satan worshipers. These, these idol worshipers. And these guys were experiencing supernatural things. It came from Satan. It came from hell. It didn't come from God. But these guys experienced supernatural stuff. And when he made this challenge, Elijah made this challenge, these guys thought, well, sure, no problem. They truly expected through the power of these idols and the satanic power that fire would be ignited from nothing and the bull would be consumed. Maybe they'd done stuff like that before. We don't know. They just didn't seem to have any problem with the challenge. So they start calling out to Baal. Oh, Baal, come on, Baal. Suck it to me, Baal. Where are you at, Baal? So they're praying and nothing happens. There's no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. And they're dancing. Come on, Baal. Woo, Baal. We know you're around, baby. Come on down. And they truly expected something to happen. I don't know if they danced as good as I did, but they were dancing around the altar of Baal. Now, and at noon, I love this next part. At noon, Elijah starts to taunt them. He starts to give them a hard time. Elijah says, shout louder. Ooh. Oh, come on, guys. Maybe, surely he's a god. Maybe he's in deep thought, which is really funny because I have, uh, <laughs> some Bible scholars think that what he was implying when he says when he's in deep thought is he's on the john. He's literally, he's taking a poop. Maybe that's his, I mean, this is how insulting Elijah was. He was. Come on, guys. Surely he's a God. Just call louder. Maybe he's in the John. Come on, you got to get this guy going. He says, uh, maybe he's busy. Maybe he's traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and you have to wake him up. So here, this Elijah, this boy's got some cojones, man. He's the only guy there against 450 prophets. They're all boogieing and chanting and, and doing all this weird uh, ritualistic dancing and stuff like that, expecting something to happen. Nothing's happening, and he starts teasing them, egging them on. He's being a real smart aleck. So the Bible says in verse 28, so they shouted louder, and they slashed themselves with swords and spears as was their custom until their blood flowed. It was all part of this ritualistic uh, satanic worship of, of this, of this uh, false god Baal. And midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying. And they're prophesying, Baal's coming. Baal's going to answer. Get ready for the fire. But nothing happens. 
Until the time of the evening sacrifice comes, there was no response, no one answered, no one paid attention. And then Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. And they came to him and they repaired the altar of the Lord, which was in ruins. And Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come saying, your name shall be Israel. And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord and he dug a trench around it large enough to hold two seas of water, which is about 15 liters, this big trench around here for all this water to go rushing into. And he arranged the wood and cut the bull into pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said to them, fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Now, wait a minute. Baal and these guys are dancing, hoping that something will spawn. I don't know if they actually expected fire to fall from heaven or just something to ignite somehow magically on its own to create this fire and, and consume this bull. Nothing happens. Baal or, or, or Elijah comes and builds his altar. And the first thing he does, he digs a big trench around it and says, dump a bunch of water on it. Whoa. This is not the way that we get spontaneous combustion. If you were going to get spontaneous combustion, you've now act against your own interest. Verse 34, he says, do it again. And they did it again. Do it a third time, he, he ordered. And they did it the third time. The water ran down the altar and even filled the trench. The thing is just sopping wet. Doing the very thing you would think makes no sense. Why would God do that? Would God ever encourage someone to do something that makes no sense? Yes! It's called faith. It's like when Jesus said, if you want to find your life, you need to lose it. What? What? That doesn't make any, any sense. He says, if you want to have financial riches, then give what you have away. Wait, that doesn't make any sense. If you want to get financially blessed, you should keep as much as you can and don't give anything away, right? If you want to uh, find your own life, you protect yourself. You, you put walls around yourself. You don't die to yourself. But yet Jesus says you want to receive, you got to give. You want to save your life, you got to give your life. You want to be my disciple, you got to forsake everything that you've got. It makes no sense, not in the natural. Because oftentimes, before you will experience the miracle, you oftentimes have to do things that to the natural make no sense at all. Would God do that? Yes. He does it all the time. And he's doing it in our lives. And he's challenging us to really become true disciples of Christ to find our lives by laying down our lives, to be prosperous financially by being generous financially. The list goes on and on. Things that don't make sense in the natural, but yet do in the spirit world. You want a fire? You dump tons of water on it before you do it. Makes no sense. It basically sets up what seems to be the impossible. And then what happens? We will see next week when we pick this up again for our next Wednesday night Bible study. See you then.